Hello, and welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and wellness podcast by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. And I'm Oliver Ellis. Thanks for listening. This is episode three, and today we'll be talking about kink. Uh, so kink is something that is stigmatized and kind of misunderstood, but it's actually a lot more common than people think. It's also a really important aspect of LGBTQ plus history. You know, a lot of BDSM, leather, and their just kind of strong cultures around, you know, quote, alternative sex um, are really important to sexual liberation and like queer rights historically. One thing that kind of comes up a lot is the hanky code, which if you don't know about the hanky code, it's a really cool um, longstanding tradition of like a sexual color code. Um, it's been around since the 1970s. Uh, it was generally gay and bisexual men who were seeking sex and they wore colored handkerchiefs or bandanas in their back pants pockets. Uh, and these indicated what kind of sex they were looking for, uh, whether they were, you know, dominant or a top or submissive or bottom. And all the colors were, you know, associated with different kinks or fetishes. So some of the more common ones are like red for fisting, yellow for water sports, black and white checkered for safe sex. Uh, and the left pocket generally meant more dominant role, right being more submissive. Um, it's really cool. I would definitely recommend like doing some research on it and looking it up because it's a really cool history around it. Um, and lesbians also had a flagging system, wearing sort of keychains clipped to the left side of pants for a top, right side for the bottom. Um, and keys on jeans is kind of still seen as a lesbian stereotype today with the whole like every queer woman has like a carabiner clip <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and it's, I don't know, I find it really cool to see how our origins as queer people still kind of have an influence today. Um, I, I just find it really interesting and kink has always kind of been uh, a really important part of that culture. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, I didn't even know about this like keychain thing before yeah. we started like, researching this. I think it's just like really interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think like a good way to start would be to go through some terminology about what kink and stuff is. So yeah, we can all be on the same page about what things mean. Firstly, fetish and kink are kind of like, they tend to be used interchangeably, but there's like some slight differences between the two terms. A fetish is a sexual fixation on a specific object or act that is, some people say it's absolutely necessary. Some people say that it's not entirely necessary for them to get sexual gratification. I think it kind of depends on the person um, and how they like to define their fetish. Um, but this is often something that isn't inherently sexual, so something like shoes or leather or something like that. But if the fixation is on like a particular body part, like feet or boobs or something like that, that's a partialism. So it's like a part of someone's body. But kink, on the other hand, is a more broad term that encompasses a lot of sexual interests that are alternative. So this could be like preferences or fantasies that go beyond kind of like, you know, lights off, missionary, cishet sex yeah. kind of a thing, like very vanilla. Um, and this could include things like BDSM, role-playing, or impact play, such as spanking or whipping. Yeah, actually, it's good to mention vanilla as well, because that is a word that's generally used um, to refer to kind of I guess, mainstream sex, if that, mm -hmm. I don't know, even is a thing. Um, and it, it isn't like necessarily a bad thing. Like any kind of sex can be great. Um, it's just, I think vanilla is the way to refer to that sort of like normative idea of like, you know, missionary sex. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's also, I, I don't really know any other good words to describe it either. That, that's the issue. Yeah. Vanilla is kind of the go to term for that kind mm -hmm. of a thing. But like, it's not to say that vanilla sex is bad in any way. Yeah. It's just totally. that, like, historically and kind of i guess currently like a lot of the time people kind of value this sex as like the best kind of sex that you should mm -hmm. do 
kind of depending on, I guess, someone's circumstances. Yeah. Um, as a way to kind of like demonize people who like to engage in kinky sex and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Like they're doing something wrong. I don't know. It's mm. pretty weird. I'm just like, you're not in their bedroom. I don't know why you're complaining <laughs> about someone else's sex life, but. Yeah. Oh God, totally. Um, so yeah, one kind of one area of king that you might have heard of is BDSM. So BDSM, um, is kind of made up of three different things. It's made up of bondage and discipline, domination and submission, and sadism and masochism. So it's kind of starting off with the domination and submission part of it. Um, it really involves that sort of power play of like giving or receiving control of one partner over another. Um, so, you know, you might have heard of like a dom or a sub. And so a dom is the person who takes that more dominant role and has the control. And then a sub is the person who is, you know, sort of giving up that control. And some people who are more submissive talk about being in a subspace, which is kind of described as feelings of floating or flying. It, there's, you know, some kind of intense feelings and maybe dizziness and incoherence. Um, but as a result of this, there's a release of neurotransmitters like epinephrine, um, endorphins. Um, other chemicals that give sort of a natural high feeling and increase pain tolerance. Um, and this can be a result of either, you know, any kind of submission scenes, like even stuff like pain play, um, which I found really interesting when I was researching this. Um, it kind of really goes to show how much trust is involved in like a dom sub relationship for people to actually be able to give up that control and have such like, I don't know, intense feelings. Um, yeah, definitely. So then uh, the opposite of that would be like a dom space. So um, this is kind of seen as a bit more of a more difficult space to achieve um, and really having to concentrate on like where you want the scene to go because you're the one who has, you know, all of the control. Um, you know, you have to make sure you know how your bottom or your sub is doing, um, you know, what you're using, like kind of your aim in the scene um, and your surroundings as well. But for people who do it a lot, um, you know, it can kind of be second nature to people, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of experience to really like get into these roles. Yeah, I think also another important thing with dom and sub dynamics is the kind of assumption, I guess, that submissives have to be the bottom and then doms mm. have to be the top. But that's yeah. not necessarily the case because you can get like, I don't know if you'd call them power bottoms or not, but like, you know, like doming from the bottom is kind of like yeah. a thing or like being submissive from the top and kind of getting like ordered around by your sub to like fuck them in a certain way or something like that. Um, so I think yeah. that's just like an important little like caveat to put in there. Yeah, that's such a good point. And also, like, this stuff doesn't have to involve penetrative mm -hmm. sex as well. Um, I, you know, I think, as we'll probably see as we talk a bit more about King, there's, like, such a wide variety of actual, like, acts that you can be doing. Um, and the sort of dom and sub things are more about the roles you're playing, not in terms of what you're physically doing, but in the kind of headspace you're, you are in and, like, you know, how you and your partner are interacting, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just, like, how the power dynamics are mm -hmm. being played out in that certain role or scene. So the next one would be sadism and masochism. Um, so sadism is basically just kind of like the sexual arousal from inflicting pain on others. Important caveat is like it's consensual pain, not just like hurting people that don't want to be hurt. Um, yeah. And then masochism is the sexual arousal from experiencing painful sensory stimulation. So that would be kind of being the sub in an impact play scene, say. Um, and one other thing that is part of BDSM that we haven't talked about yet is bondage and discipline. Um, but I think we'll go into that a little bit more when we do actually talk about bondage. <laughs> we'll have a bit of a section of that later in. So we can, we can skip that for just now. Yeah. 
and then also like a scene. I think I've said it a couple times, you know, actually, like <laughs> defining it. Yeah. Um, but basically a scene is like, there's kind of a bit of a debate in kind of the BDSM community about what this means. Cause some people would use it as like the BDSM scene. So kind of like the culture surrounding King, its community and stuff like that. But there's also kind of this more, I guess, like intimate definition of it where it's like in between two people or like a group of people who are engaging in a sexual act but it's like kind of like a kind of like a play i guess like you're taking on roles where it's kind of you're away from i guess reality i don't know how to describe this but like it's kind of like role playing i guess yeah maybe. um but it's basically like there's a start and an end stop of like when people are engaging in these roles for this particular sexual act and that's kind of defined as like the scene mm -hmm. so someone could have like an impact play scene so like hitting someone else so there's like a start and an end to when people are kind of engaging in those power play things yeah I, that's important to note as well i guess like since people are taking on roles that they maybe don't take on in their everyday life, um, especially if it's a bit more, you know, if they are doing any kind of pain play or something like that. So I think having like that separation and like knowing things only last for a specific amount of time, I guess, is probably quite helpful. Yeah, because I think there is definitely like some people have that fantasy of like a 24-7 kind of dom-sub dynamic thing, but that's mm -hmm. not something you can just kind of walk into after like without kind of doing any other kind of play leading up to it or anything like that yeah absolutely you have to have um, some pre-established limits and stuff to begin yes. with i think yeah definitely um and in talking about pre-established limits something that we talk about in regards to everything but especially in regards to any kind of kink um is having a safe word so that is just a word or phrase that is, is used to like stop the scene or the sex that you're having um you know, it, it's like a hard limit. You know, safe words are supposed to be non-negotiable. So if someone says their safe word, that just means stop. It doesn't mean it. It doesn't mean like try to convince them. Otherwise, it just absolutely means stop. Um, yeah. And a lot of people use a safe word that like wouldn't come up in a, in a normal conversation or in the scene anyway. So it'd just be like a random word, like pineapple or something. If they say that, then you stop. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I thought it would be kind of interesting to just kind of briefly describe a couple kind of kink terms that someone might see around but not know exactly what it means because a CBT, which someone could think is cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. But, um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> In this circumstance, it's cock and ball torture, which could include ball stretching or ball bashing, which is kind of hitting them with like small paddles or other blunt objects and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then another one is e-stim, which involves using electrodes and electric shock during BDSM play. But this is definitely a bit of a varsity level thing, so it's kind of mm -hmm. like a not for beginners. Um, and you have to kind of use very professionally made from like reputable sources, like mm. um, electrical units. You can't just kind of use a car battery or something like that. <laughs> like, please don't do that. Yeah, yeah, that is the thing about a lot of the kink stuff is that like you know it does take some research and it takes some practice and it is not something that you can yeah just kind of walk into i guess um yeah, yeah. another kind of phrase that is used around the kink scene is safe sane and consensual sorry can <laughs> safe sane and consensual sorry it's early i can't speak yet um <laughs> so this is kind of about uh knowing the risks and avoiding any kind of long-term injury or harm uh and you know making sure that you're in the right state of mind to consent so like things like drugs and alcohol may impact someone's ability to, to consent um, 
but the word sane has been criticized by people um because it kind of does stigmatize people with mental health disorders um and you know stating that it kind of suggests that if someone is you know maybe in a manic or depressive state um or is dealing with any kind of other mental health difficulties then they shouldn't be allowed to engage in kink so um you know the word sane aside um you know it should kind of be a case-by-case assessment you should just kind of make sure that you know, yourself and your partner are both in the right headspace and know the risks to anything you're doing and both are, like, actually agreeing to do it. Mm-hmm. Some people also like to use kink as a way to kind of process their traumas or, like, an emotional pain or something like that because, as we said earlier, with, like, say, being a submissive or something, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, endorphins and stuff that could make someone feel a bit better in, like, the short term, I guess. Um but that is to say that kink may be therapeutic, but it is not a replacement for therapy. Yes. Um, absolutely not. So if there is something that's kind of deeper down and you have the access to get a therapy, because I know getting access to therapy is very difficult, especially mm-hmm. right now, um, then please seek professional help. But yeah. Yeah. You can do CBT as in cock and ball torture and then do cbt as in kind of behavioral therapy (laughs) all the cbt's (laughs) but just like the underlying thing kind of going back to our first episode is just that like to engage in any kind of sex but especially with stuff like kink where it could be a lot heavier than kind of normal vanilla sex and stuff like that you just have to have informed and enthusiastic consent to engage in any of these Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um, do you want to talk a little bit about yes, no, maybe lists? I know we were talking before about those things can be very uh, helpful when you're talking about kink with a partner. Yeah, so there's a pretty good template from Bex Talk Sex, who is one of the co-hosts of the Dildalks podcast, which I recommend. Yeah. It's very good. Um, but he made it, he has like a template on his website, which I'll link in the show notes. But it's basically just like a template where it's got like a yes. I think it's like yes, like want to do completely yes curious or something like that and then maybe or no and then you can put in like different kinks that go into like all of those different things you could also just use it in like non-kink terms or just like mm-hmm. food that you like kind of a thing after you both do one of these lists you kind of go through the list together kind of see what's in your yeses like where your yeses overlap so it's like cool we can both do impact because we both want to do that um but the goal here is to kind of look at the things that you can do together and not to kind of dwell on the nose. Cause like if someone has something in their no that you really want to do, you shouldn't really try to talk someone out mm-hmm. of do it, like out of having that in their no because yeah. Or like expect them to kind of like explain that to them because they don't really owe you that explanation. Like they can mm-hmm. explain it if they want to, but just you should take someone's no as a no. They don't have to engage in any kind of kink. Yeah. Totally. To. The first time I ever saw a yes, no, maybe list was in um, a really cool sex shop in Chicago called Early to Bed. Um, and I just thought it was such a cool idea because I think, I don't know, it almost kind of reminds me of like the hanky code of like making it very clear, like, yes, I'm into this. No, I'm not into this. Um, and yeah, I think it is, it kind of probably does help focus on the yeses a bit more because you find things in common and like, you know, certain things are off the table. So it's not like a question anymore. Um, it just, I feel like that's a really good idea for sure. Yeah. And there's also, the, there's like the term that Dan Savage coined where it's like good giving and game and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like the game part of that kind of is about kind of if there's a kink that you're not particularly like super into but your partner is, you could maybe try that. But that's with the caveat of kind of if you want to kind of explore that and like if 
mm-hmm. giving that kind of pleasure to your partner would give you pleasure as well, kind of a thing. Yeah. That doesn't, it's not about kind of ignoring your own limits and your own boundaries to kind of do something that you think will please your partner, but will effectively hurt you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess that's why it's so good to have the maybe part, because if it's mm-hmm. something you're interested in or, you know, you maybe would want to try, but only if it's something your partner is really into, like, you know, that is a good sort of area of like, you know, we can discuss this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I think it would be also good to talk about um, kink stigma a bit, um, because, you know, we see stigma about kink um, pretty much everywhere. I mean, I feel like so many just movies have like jokes about you know a foot fetish or something like that um which yeah. apparently is actually a really 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 common fetish so i don't know why people are joking mm-hmm. that all the time but um even in like healthcare settings and stuff there is still a lot of stigma around kink um which it you know just kind of makes people feel shame rather than actually being able to talk about stuff yeah and it's just bringing shame and stuff into healthcare is not going to help anyone mm-hmm. because you can't give the, like healthcare practitioner enough information so they know what's going on and yeah. also they won't have enough information to kind of help you um and then you can't advocate for your own body um but Waldora, i think is how you say the name in 2016 they did a qualitative study with about i think it's like 115 participants um asking them kind of about their experiences with health related stigma with their kinks uh, quite a few participants express their kind of awareness about kind of their increased in, like risk of getting HIV or other STIs and stuff because some had engaged in like kinks which involved quite a lot of blood, so it could be like bloodborne transmission and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And then there were others who expressed being in like a poly relationship or having se- multiple sexual partners. Um, so they express the need for like they want to express kind of what sexual activities and stuff they're doing to the healthcare practitioners so they have a good awareness of what risk factors they could have so they can get like PAP or PrEP or get a more STI test and stuff like that but there was also just like a lot of people felt too ashamed to bring it up to their practitioners because of their fear of encountering stigma. This was particularly felt by the female participants because there is also that kind of stigma of like women shouldn't enjoy sex, women shouldn't be sexual. Um, So they kind of felt like if they disclose that to their practitioner, they'd be kind of like, get like a weird look from their practitioner or like, kind of get insinuated that they're like a slut or something like that. Yeah, being slashed by their doctor, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But but despite these fears, some participants reported that they had had some pretty good experiences interacting with healthcare um, providers. Um, as even when they were open with their kink orientation, a few participants had said that when they visited the ER with like a kink related concern, they had been really pleased with the professionalism of their providers when kind of explaining how they'd gotten like a certain injury, like say they'd gotten like, I don't know, I was going to say like rope burn, but I feel like, would you go to the ER for that? <laughs> Maybe it depends how serious it is, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but this study as like a bit of a, I guess, Critical analysis. Mm. It's like a master student <laughs> <laughs> or post master student. Yeah. Um, this was done in San Francisco, so that is a typically more liberal area, so it might be more accepting than other places, especially like in the US. So 
It, yeah, they, they might be like seeing similar things before if there's like more of a kink scene there. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like not really going to be applicable to like very rural areas where right. there's not really anything like that. But this kind of this stigma led to people kind of, I guess, lying about how they'd received things like getting bruises from impact play and stuff like that yeah. by kind of saying that they had got it through rugby or something like that. Um, which obviously like it's not good to lie to your practitioner, but it could be in their eyes, like, an easier way to kind of deal with that because a lot of people yeah. busy also just didn't want to spend their entire appointment explaining their kinks to their practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You're going in there for something else. It doesn't. You don't want to sit there and educate someone who should <laughs> already be educated about this. Yeah. And there was also, like, some people didn't want to explain where they'd gotten bruises or, like, welts and stuff like that from BDSM because... They wanted to kind of have a more kind of vanilla, like doing rugby and stuff like that to avoid kind of accusations of like intimate partner violence and stuff like that, even if those like wounds and stuff like that had come by consensually. Um, but some people also said that they would prefer to tell their practitioner that they did it through, well, they got those things through BDSM because they mm-hmm. didn't want them to kind of make assumptions. Because right. like those assumptions can have like some pretty devastating implications especially if the part like the person has kids because mm-hmm. if because they could be labeled as a victim or a perpetrator of intimate partner violence um which could cause like their medical visit to be delayed or cancelled or they could have their children taken away there could be a police or work investigation so this kind of stigma has some like very real world implications for king practitioners yeah no absolutely um so i guess i mean in terms of what medical professionals can actually do, just, I guess, staying informed about kink and actually making an effort to understand kind of non-normative sexual practices um, and just keeping in an open mind, um, I think that's such an important thing for doctors and nurses to do, but it doesn't always happen. Because, um, mm-hmm. like we said before, you know, judging someone or shaming them for certain sexual practices is just going to make them not want to speak up and not want to ask questions about their safety and health. So, you know, they might not be getting the care they actually need if they don't feel comfortable speaking about it. Um, so going off of, you know, the stigma and stuff, I thought it would be good to talk about just some tips that people um, can learn about if they do want to engage in any kind of kink behavior. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, like bondage tips? Yeah, so bondage is kind of the act of tying up or restraining another person. And for kind of people tend to go for those, you know, like the metal kind of cheapo handcuffs that you can <laughs> yeah. get from like any sex toy store and stuff like that. But they're not great view um and i'll go into kind of like nerve injury and stuff in a second mm. but you should kind of use more padded like uh cuffs that are like a lot thicker they cover your like whole wrist and stuff like that and they should have like a bit of cushioning and stuff because mm. that will kind of help prevent any nerve damage also those like cheap metal handcuffs might be very comfortable for a long amount of time like if you're doing a longer scene it's probably better to have something more comfortable if that's kind of something that you're interested in doing um, and with the kind of diameter stuff as well, if you're going to use a rope, then you need to make sure you have a rope that's not too thin. So anything below five millimeters in diameter is kind of not great because it could lead to skin burns, circulation problems, bruises or scars or kind of other nerve injury stuff like mm-hmm. that. So with nerve injury, there's kind of a couple telltale signs where it's kind of nerve compression occurs when rope or other kind of 
modes of bondage places excessive pressure directly on a nerve, often by crushing against a bone. This type of injury can be anywhere from mildly annoying to seriously debilitating, uh, because nerves often heal very slowly, um, and acute symptoms of nerve injury can last for months. One way to tell if there's kind of nerve injury or some kind of thing, just your body kind of telling you to take a break for a yeah. second, is if there's kind of a pins and needles feeling, or you feel numbness in like your hands or something like that, like where you're kind of being tied up. Um, and if you kind of have that kind of feeling, just like notify your partner, take a quick break, take the cuffs or loosen the rope or something like that. Also keep flat-edged medical safety scissors near you just in case you need to kind of like cut someone out of rope or mm. tape or something like that really quickly. Yeah. But the kind of danger sites for bondage are the wrists. So in the kind of like, if you look at your hands, there's the kind of like bump on your wrist. Um, and there's kind of a groove there. That's where, where on both like the thumb side and the pinky side of that group, there are vulnerable sensory nerves. So that's a pretty common site for injury because a lot of people like to, uh, kind of tie someone up by their wrists. Right. But it's just like if you, don't have anything that can kind of get lodged in that little like like nook should be okay just like don't tie someone up too tight as well i think like the rule yeah. would, um i think the rule of rope i don't know if it's it's probably the same with cuffs is like about like a finger's width between the rope and the skin or something like that so it's like mm. it's, it's still kind of tight but it's not crushing someone basically yeah oh for sure and i guess if like if the goal for a lot of the stuff is, like, being restrained rather than, like, causing pain, like, you probably still do want it to be fairly comfortable for the person. Um, unless, I mean, unless there's any kind of pain play involved, but, like, yeah, you don't want the person to be, you know, in pain, especially, like, you know, in any kink stuff, you don't want to cause any lasting harm or pain, I guess. Yeah. So it's, like, you could want to be restrained and stuff like that, but you don't have to be, like, getting your your nerves and everything like that getting crushed to feel yeah. restrained. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're engaging in pain play, then we'll go into like impact play and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there are safer ways to do that than yes. kind of leading to very long-term mm-hmm. harm, like with nerve damage, which could last a long time. Yeah. And there's also the knees and elbows can be some particularly vulnerable places as well with rope and stuff. Because uh, there are some nerves that kind of go up and down your legs and your arms and stuff like that, and like the skin and stuff there is pretty thin and quite vulnerable. Mm. So, just I would Google. We'll add some like ref, like some resources in the show notes as well. But find some good uh, kind of tutorials on how to tie someone up. Like I know what's the safe word on YouTube mm. have quite a good number of like rope tying like shibari kind of tutorials and stuff like that and you can kind of see where they place ropes and stuff like that that don't cause a lot of harm to someone's body Mm -hmm. um so yeah so another type of um play that we mentioned is impact play so this is like the act of striking another person uh you know within a sexual activity or scene so if you've seen you know paddles or whips or anything like that used or even just your hand um that can be used as impact play and i mean this can sort of have a lot of different reasons it could be within like a dom sub dynamic but i mean a lot of people like sort of light impacts play um obviously not everyone and you should always ask before you do but um you know things like spanking are quite common within like sexual activity 
Um, yeah. but there are, there are areas to avoid. So, um, there's specific areas like the kidneys, um, the tailbone, the spine, hips, neck, face, and ears. Like, there's lots of areas that can be a bit, um, that can cause a bit more harm if you, if you hit them with any impact. So stick to like the fleshier areas, um, you know, like thighs, ass, forearms are okay. Not really sp- supposed to do sort of near wrists, as we talked about before. That is kind of a bit of a more vulnerable area. And yeah, just kind of make sure that the part of the person you're hitting is they're not going to like cause lasting damage to them, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't want to, I think you can find, I can link one in the show notes as well, but you can find mm. like body maps and stuff where it's kind of yeah. color coded of like places to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually just like thighs and ass, pretty fucking safe space yeah. to go. You know, mm-hmm. like don't really don't go for anywhere where there's like organs, basically. Yes. <laughs> Ow. Um, yeah, that's a good bicycle for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so there's also within impact play, there's a couple of different types of descriptors for different types of pain. Um, so thirty pain is tended to be used to describe like a firm impact that's kind of like a punch effect. Uh this can be this can be achieved using heavy paddles, thick canes, or like heavy floggers. And they tend to use uh bruises without like a sharp sting, kind of like that kind of thud feeling. This can also kind of be achieved using like a wooden spoon or like a fist or something like that. Uh stingy pain is also used uh as a descriptor and that could be a sharp intense sensation using something like a thin cane, a rubber paddle, a pinwheel, or a face slap. Stingy sensations tend to leave welts with small amounts of bruising unless it's done repeatedly in the same place. Stingy pain causes more surface skin damage rather than a deep impact of a thud. Um but when you're doing impact play and stuff like that, you should kind of rub the area of the skin with circular motions and gentle taps to kind of warm up the skin. Don't just like go in like full throttle, like <laughs> hit someone yeah. unless, kind of, unless that's what they want, but like kind of beginner tips, kind of ease yourself into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when doing something with someone new, kind of start gently and slowly do like a small amount, kind of building up the pressure or like the intensity and stuff like that. And then check in and see if they want it harder, gentler, if they want it somewhere else. Uh, and then kind of find a rhythm that works for both of you. And also a really good tip for impact play and stuff like that is the top should, or like the dominant person, should also experiment like using kind of the implement that they want to use, like the hand or a paddle or a cane or something like that. And like do that on their own thigh or forearm or something so they know how hard their strength is. Because you could think you're doing something really softly, but you're actually like really strong. You're like, going very intense for someone. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good tip. Um, and then the kind of final tip that I have for impact play is kind of using the red, yellow, green thing that we talked about in the first episode of kind of like, you could check in on the submissive person and kind of go red, yellow, or green. Green would be keep going. Yellow could be slow down or it could be like just two or five or ten more hits and then check back in on them. And then red would be completely stop the impact play scene and then maybe rekindle it later if you want to or just completely stop. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a really good tip. Um, we keep going back to like the first episode, which I feel like just shows how <laughs> just essential everything about consent is to like just yeah. everything basically, which is a good point to make, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Can't do anything um, without consent. Yeah, literally. So another thing we wanted to talk about, which is kind of kink adjacent, um, is chemsex. So if you don't know what chemsex is, um, Chemsex parties are generally between like gay and bi men, um, and they're characterized by the use of drugs like mephedrone, GHB, 
uh, crystal meth, among others, um, and they can last several hours or even days. Um, it's it's a very specific scene. So if you don't, if you think it maybe doesn't apply to you, it's still something good to learn about. Um, and especially like talking about drugs and sex, there's other drugs that are a bit more commonly used, just in like you know queer clubbing scenes and stuff, like cocaine or like poppers. Um, and you should really learn about drug reactions because some drugs, even like alcohol and cocaine, have really dangerous um, implications when taken together. So like Viagra is something that can in- interact with a lot of drugs, which is also commonly used in chemsex. And drugs and alcohol do kind of complicate sex a little bit. Um, if you're at a party and maybe doing it for a-, a long amount of time, it can be easier to forget to use condoms or to like take medications like PrEP or your HIV medications, um, which can actually also have an interaction interaction with drugs you're taking um and consent also as we talked about can be an issue when under the influence of drugs or alcohol so um whenever there's drugs involved it is just important to educate yourself on you know whatever you're taking and just doing it as safely as possible so if you are taking drugs you know try to prepare beforehand have condoms and lube um clean injecting equipment if that's something you're using um just kind of anything you can do to reduce the harm because people who are engaging in chemsex or any any kinks that can kind of be considered dangerous, um, you know, they'll be doing so for a reason. It might be hard for them to just stop and they might not want to stop. So rather than, you know, again, shaming them and making them not want to talk about it, it's really important for people to be able to access the resources they need to have the safest sex they possibly can um, that they themselves are able to. So yeah, definitely. So we'll put some resources in the description again, um, talking a bit more about sex and drugs because um it's if it's something you're taking part in it's definitely something that you should should know about i guess yeah because with any kind of harm reduction thing like sex or drugs or something like that you you're never gonna stop people from doing these kind Mm -hmm. of things you just have to kind of have the most harm reduction that you can have as possible Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to drugs because if you're using drugs like meth and things like that that Mm -hmm. could have very difficult withdrawal symptoms or like if someone's very addicted and they suddenly stop without kind of any wind down period or anything like that they could literally cause them to have very very severe withdrawal syndromes mm-hmm. or die so kind of having those access to clean dr- like clean needles mm-hmm. um testing kits and stuff like that that's yeah. so invaluable like it's so important yeah absolutely so like if you want to bring up kink with your partner like you like say you've had you've been in a relationship and you've kind of primarily done very quote-unquote vanilla sex activities but you've watched porn or some things sparked your interest about certain kink like how could you kind of bring that up to your partner yeah it's definitely something good to talk about because i think i guess even if you know whether it's a new sexual partner or you've been having sex with this person for years you know you might want to try something new and something that maybe isn't what other people would expect um so you know i figured we would talk a little bit about you know how to bring this up and i mean i think that just in my opinion the best thing you can do is to just kind of be straightforward and honest with people um yeah i think having things like yes no maybe list could be helpful as well um and on the other side of things like if your partner comes to you and says they want to try something different that doesn't it's a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bored or that they don't like having sex with you. Um, it's actually a sign that they are comfortable enough with you to talk about their desires, which, I mean, I feel like is already pretty sexy. So, you know, if someone brings up something that they want to try, um, obviously, like, if you're not comfortable with it, say no. 
But, um, you know, it's just good to be open and a bit non-judgmental if someone brings something up to you because, you know, it is kind of vulnerable to, you know, say, oh, this is something I'm into um, if it's not something kind of normative, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Because I think because of kind of kink stigma and stuff, people have a lot of preconceived notions about what certain, like, if someone has a kink, then they have to be X, Y, and Z. Like, there's, mm. like, a lot of misconceptions about, I guess, people who do DGLG or something like that, where it's, mm. like, daddy doll, little girl kind of dynamics, where oh, I right. listened to people who are into those kinks kind of explain why they're into it, and it's more about that kind of nurture or, like, being taken care of and, like, the power dynamic rather than kind of, like, children in itself. Right. Um. So, because there are kind of those misconceptions about why someone might be into a certain king, if someone kind of tells you, I'd like to try this out, that could kind of lead to someone being like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? And they have like a very intense, like, kind of snappy reaction to mm. what someone had just told them rather than kind of having an open mind and like letting the person explain why they're into that kink, what's appealing about it to them. So just kind of like having an open mind, like obviously if it's something you're not comfortable doing, you don't have to do it, mm. but you could try and like hear someone out, I guess, and then see if after they've kind of explained it rather than kind of going through your own notions. Because I'd assume if someone's into it, they've done a lot more research than you would have. Mm. So yeah, that's the thing about research as well. Like if you're trying to bring something up and, you know, if you think your partner maybe doesn't know a lot about it, you know, you can like include them in the research. Like maybe there is mm -hmm. an episode of a podcast that you could listen to that's about, you know, bondage or something. Maybe there's a YouTube video, um, you know, even things like watching specific kinks in porn together, you know, to see if you're into it. Obviously, porn isn't always the best. Um, you know, it shouldn't be your only, you know, source of um, information because it isn't always you know, the most accurate or consensual or, you know, they don't always talk about that stuff. Um, but, you know, just sort of finding ways to, I guess, ease people into it or, like, bring up the idea um, if they're not really familiar with it, I guess, could be good. Yeah, that's, like, a really good tip, yeah. I think. Just kind of bringing them into the process, let them mm -hmm. kind of get into your headspace and understand what is, like, appealing about this to you mm -hmm. would really yeah. help kind of bridge that kind of, I guess, like, gap in communication that mm -hmm. often happens that could agree to arguments and kind of shaming people because mm -hmm. that is a big thing with kind of kink is obviously there's a lot of shame already yeah i'd imagine with edgier kinks in quotes that they would have already experienced at least some shame about it which would mm -hmm. kind of it wouldn't lend itself well to kind of opening yourself up to your like intimate partner or partners and then having them kind of react in the same way that mm -hmm. you've been reacted to in the past and stuff like that so i think just having an open mind letting them explain and kind of guide you through research and stuff like that would be a really good way to kind of explore that if you want to. Yeah, that's something even I found just like doing research about kinks and stuff is that like, I think the best thing you can do to help yourself keep an open mind is just to like listen to someone explain why they're into something. I feel like because it can be kind of, it can be hard at first if it's not something that you, that appeals to you or if it's not something that you really understand. But, you know, it, once you yeah, just kind of hear things from other people's perspective. I feel like that can be a really good just kind of exercise in keeping an open mind, I guess. Yeah, literally, because I spent um, a lot of, like, last year researching, like, listening to podcasts and stuff about, like, sex and kink mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I remember I was visiting a friend last year, and she was like, what's, like, the weirdest kink that you've heard of and stuff like that? And I was like, I don't have an answer because I've yeah. listened to people explain why they're into a certain kink and it's like I'm not into that kink like I'm not into DDLG or like mm -hmm. something like that but I'm not gonna say it's inherently weird because I know why people 
want to do it, and I also kind of don't care that much. <laughs> it's not hurting anyone. I don't really want to call it weird because it doesn't help the conversation at all, in my opinion. Mm. To just label someone as a weirdo for doing something that's like not hurting anyone. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think I don't know. Kink's gonna be such a good way of like being creative with sex, and I think especially mm. in the last sort of you know couple of years, like finding different ways to have sex and be intimate with your partner has been really important. You know, lots of people were separated over COVID. So like having kinks that you can even do long distance, like over Zoom or over Skype or something like that. Um, or like, you know, if you're worried about COVID and you're having sex with someone, you know, like put on a mask, you do like sexy nurse or doctor role play or something, you know, like there's, I think there's ways that it can be really fun, but also help reduce your risk. Um, and I was yeah. reading about that as well. Like, you know, sort of historically, there is there are kinks that you can do that don't really involve, um, you know, like bodily fluids as much. So if it's something like you're worried about HIV or you're worried about SDIs or maybe you just got tested, but you haven't like got the results back. So you don't want to do anything that, you know, puts you at risk of getting any other SDIs. Um, you know, there are different kinks that you can explore that, you know, you can be intimate and you can have pleasurable experiences that don't actually put you at risk. Of, of certain SDIs, which is a really cool thing. Yeah, like, I think I remember on a Dan Savage podcast or something last year, he said that, like, I think it was in New York or something, as part of their, like, COVID sex guidelines or something, they recommended, like, using glory holes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, like, you're not face-to-face, it's like a wall. Yeah. Way, which I thought was, like, a really interesting and, like, quite creative idea to kind of get around that. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> But, like, with kind of long-distance stuff, because I've got, like, a little, little bit of experience with this, um, mm-hmm. you can kind of just, like, through text and stuff, because I don't really like doing, like, through calls and stuff, mm-hmm. kind of, like, I don't know, I find it, like, it kind of cringes me out personally, because I don't, I get embarrassed easily. Yeah, it's um, definitely not for everyone. <laughs> but kind of, like, through text, kind of describing different scenes and stuff that you want to do, mm-hmm. um when you can be together again and stuff like that. That's quite like an interesting way to kind of, I guess, gear both of you up or, or yeah. if it's like setting or whatever, um, to kind of gear people up and like give you some time to kind of think about things you want to do. And it also kind of gives you time away from each other to explore different things, do your yeah. own research. So I guess like when you're there, you're a bit more equipped than kind of just like showing up at their house and just being like, okay, <laughs> don't know <laughs> yeah totally and even just like solo sex like masturbation can be really important and like i don't know figuring out what you like what you don't like even you know in regards to like any kind of pleasure but also like kink like there's things that you can try on your own to kind of see what you like um and that can like really help out your partner's sex life as well yeah definitely um sure. so we've talked a lot about you know kink and fetish this entire episode but um you know, what things are not okay to fetishize? Because I think there are certain things. Um, and I think something we both definitely believe in is like, it's not okay to fetishize a certain group of people. So like, as trans people, um, you know, you do get fetishized quite often where people sort of see you for, you know, what your body or just what they perceive your body to be, even if they don't know. Um, and that can be quite harmful for people because you're like grouping an entire an entire population of people into like this one thing and like seeing them as kind of sexual objects rather than people i guess yeah like i think there's definitely like a bit of nuance to it where there is like there are trans people who will consent to kind of like consensual transfetishization and stuff mm. like that or like cisification kings and stuff where they're consenting to it but like obviously the problem is when if you go on grinder or something 
And then someone's like, oh, you're trans? That's so hot. And you're like, yeah. why? <laughs> like, what does this have to do with, like, I don't know. It's like, and also just kind of like the implications and kind of like assumptions that people make just because of your minority group status. So mm-hmm. there's kind of, there's racialized uh, assumptions and stuff as well, where it's kind of like, yeah, I'm trying to think. There's like one to do like Asian women or like black women and stuff like that, particularly, mm-hmm. or like with black men, where it's like, oh, they're like hypersexual or like massive digs, like that kind of like fetishization of like mm-hmm. black men. Yeah. Um, and then with trans people, I found that like, through, because I did a study interviewing trans people about their experiences using dating apps and stuff like that. It was only 15 people, so it's not really, like, you can't really generalize it, and also because it's a qualitative study. But my participants kind of, they often described this kind of assumption of being submissive, um, especially when they were, like, switches or they were, like, doms and stuff like that, where they were like, why can't you see me as a dom? Why can't you see me mm-hmm. as a switch? Like, why do I have to always be submissive because of, like, the genitalia or my gender identity and stuff like that? Yeah. Um. So I think that, like, a lot of, like, these kind of trans-specific ones, especially when it comes to, I guess with like any trans person really, mm. there's also that kind of layer of misogyny and stuff like that that goes into it as well, because there's the assumption of like, oh, a trans man who has a vulva still, oh, he has to be a bottom, like he has to be quote-unquote treated like a woman, has to be submissive. Um, and then with trans women, they can, because if they have a penis still, they could be seen as like, oh, they have to be the dominant person, like a lot of my like trans feminine participants said that they had people like if they were a bottom they had people being like oh i want you to fuck me and they were like i don't want to do that yeah um or because they are a are women they have had people kind of assume because they are women that they have to be submissive so there's also that kind of layer to it as well i think yeah people expect us to conform to these sort of preconceived notions about you know, what they perceive trans people to be, which is usually not accurate at all. Um, and like a lot of porn just kind of reinforces these, these stereotypes, I guess. A lot of it like fetishizes minority groups, um, and really kind of promotes unhealthy stereotypes. So, um, there's nothing wrong with watching porn, but like it's also good to have a bit of a critical eye, um, and understand that like what you're seeing isn't always, you know, reality and isn't always, um, you know, the great representation that we wish it was. <laughs> yeah. And I think from, like, I know from the kind of sex work scene, especially with, like, OnlyFans and stuff mm-hmm. like that, I've seen a lot of people kind of talk about how they might not be into the kind of things that they do for their performing yeah. when they're doing when they're making porn and stuff like that, but they know those certain types of tropes and things like that gets them views, gets them money, which is realistically what they're usually doing it for because mm-hmm. they need money. Yeah. Um. So I often find it's a bit unfair to kind of get on just the actor for kind yeah. of perpetrating these stereotypes and stuff like that because realistically a lot of the time it's kind of out of necessity so they can pay rent you know oh yeah absolutely like the people who are being fetishized in these scenes like it you know it's not on them at all yeah it's like there's just like a whole complex thing about it where i think a lot of people kind of try to take any ounce of nuance out of it mm-hmm. and kind of blame the person in the porn kind of perpetrating these things but there's a lot more going on oh yeah absolutely. within that kind of system of kind of power dynamics and all of this that i don't think we have time to go through right yeah now. i know other um, episode. yeah um, but that would be like an interesting other episode to do one just about like porn and like tropes and stuff like that yeah but, totally yeah that's my little piece about that i guess <laughs> yeah no absolutely um 
But overall, I mean, other than fetishizing groups of people who don't consent to it, um, kinks can be great. Kinks can be really, you know, creative, satisfying things to explore in sex. Um, but overall, like, you know, don't do anything you're not comfortable with doing. I feel like that's, you know, it always goes back to consent, literally in like every single episode, but yeah. that really is the, the main point of it all. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the reason why we chose it as the first episode, yeah. because we're just going to have to keep going back to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Literally the fundamental thing of any sex act that you're going to do. So. Yeah. Hi folks, thanks for listening to episode 3. Hope you found it interesting and informative. Um, we're going to link some helpful resources in the episode description if you want to find out any more about Kink. Um, there's always so much more than we have time to talk about. It's really good to, to find some resources. Um, as always, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at genderfckpod. Uh, the next episode will be out in about two weeks, so in the meantime, feel free to get in touch, comment, tweet at us, share what you thought. We want to hear from you. Um, we truly appreciate it every single one of you listening so thank you again for listening